Welcome back to The Francisca Show, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com and the show in which people share their stories. This is the Survivor Special, where survivors of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse come forward to share their experiences and thereby raising awareness and preventing the likelihood of it happening again. No further research has been done into these stories. This episode is intended for mature audiences and listener discretion is advised. Names have been changed to provide some privacy to our dear guests sharing their vulnerable and personal experiences. I am Francisca, and you are listening to the No More Silence segment on The Francisca Show. Welcome back to this No More Silence series on The Francisca Show podcast. Today we have with us Rafi, who will be sharing his personal experiences. And Rafi, I'll give you the mic. You can start wherever you feel comfortable starting. I know you told me you're not sure if there's a chronological order to the story. I believe that you know that whatever, however the story comes out, it will make sense for you as well as for our listeners today. Thank you. Um, I, I feel my story, well, my story begins at the age of nine, and I was sexually abused by my uncle, and it was something that um, had happened to a few other people that I know of. And he actually used that saying, well, this person was okay with it. That person who you trust is okay with it. And that was used as a a platform to coerce me. Um, The events themselves were difficult. They were traumatic. But at the same time, it's something I didn't really think much of. It went on for two years. And it was always done in a matter of of being asked, hey, do you want to go do this now? Or do you want to come over after um, after shul on Shabbat? And there were always excuses. The grooming was very successful of my parents. <laughs> so um, to the point they would encourage me to go over and there were always legitimate reasons. And I, uh, at the after two years, he asked me eventually, I said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, it wasn't a passion to stand up for myself like I wish it was. But it was just kind of the way an 11-year-old or 10-and-a-half-year-old would say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, fast forward um, about two, three years. The timeline's a little blurry for me. And I was encouraged to, uh, by someone that I know that this occurred to as well, to speak to my parents about it. And I spoke to them. They listened. They understood. And they suggested that I see a therapist. And this is kind of where the trajectory of what should have happened went awry. And um, that's not to knock on therapists. It happened to be that the person that I saw at whenever I met with them would always say, well, when we're done here, um, whatever we speak about, I'm going to tell your mother. So let's think uh, down down that line. So I automatically closed up and um, I never really received the, the services I should have uh, at that time. Um, at the same time, I did want, even at a younger age, let's say at a, you know, a younger relatively, um, the age of 15, 16, growing up, seeing how, uh, or understanding more so how this was something that shouldn't have happened. Um, actually, I'm going to rewind a moment, sorry. Uh, I think another relevant piece is while I, when I came out to my parents and I told them what had happened, 
um, they assured me that this wouldn't happen anymore. They weren't going to pursue legal action because um, not only would it be pursuing legal action was harmful to myself, that no one would ever want to hire me, that people would look down on me in the community. Um, I grew up in a modern Orthodox community, so um, it and my parents were or are a bit influential in the community, and I think they were very scared of their name being tarnished. And so I always wanted to, that assurance that something was being done about it. Um, that was the a, a big clause that I had with my parents, and I was assured that he would never work with kids again. And fast forward a bit, I went to therapy. It didn't really do anything. I, I, I knowingly closed up because I felt I couldn't trust the, the therapist that I was working with. And there were stories here and there that he was working in different shuls and different Jewish centers in the, in the New York area. And I, I grew up in Brooklyn, so this was all happening in that general, um, you know, in the New York City area or in the greater New York area. And it, and so it turned out that over time, um, this secure, um, I thought everything was all wrapped up and everything was taken care of. And there would once in a while be things in the news, especially with the, with priests about it coming up and there being legal justice. And I always want to speak to my, I, I always want to pursue legal action, uh, not necessarily for, to sue for money or monetary gain, but I did want it on the record that this man is a child molester. And it, and, the, and every time I would speak to my parents about it, I was told how, again, no one will ever want to work with me if I have my name on a legal document saying I filed a suit against him. Uh, no one would ever want to be friends with me or professionally engage with me. Um, and it would be something. And in addition, I should worry about his daughters because his poor daughters um, will they won't have if I sue him, they won't have money to go to college and uh, many other claims when I look back were ridiculous. But as a 16, 17 year old, it's something that you trust your parents and you trust their advice. Um, and it's something that I, I, I took their advice. I, I didn't do anything. Um, Fast forward to when I was uh, about 23 years old. I had moved out of the house. I was living with my girlfriend at the time, now wife, and I told her the react. I, I told her what had happened to me as a child, and her reaction was, um, it was very intense. She was very saddened by it. She was very upset by it. And it was the first time I ever saw anyone actually upset by the story I told. Everyone in my family knew. And it was always like this not big deal. Like, yeah, it happened to you, but it happened to other people. And you should really feel bad for those other people because they had it worse than you. Um, and I was the only one who ever really wanted to pursue anything. And they would say, well, you're the only one who wanted to pursue legal action, but the other people don't want to pursue legal action. And how could you do that to those people? Um, in a, I want to say in my, so, so with my wife, it was the first time that I really saw, um, someone getting upset for me. And it was very confusing because I didn't understand why anyone really cared. 
um, or why it was even such a big deal. I, I told her as a, hey, by the way, this had happened, um, and I guess you should kind of know about it. But I didn't really expect anything of it. And looking back, I almost wonder why I told her. But um, I'm very happy I did. And the, the amount of support that I got from her um, really unleashed something within me that I'm going to find out where this guy is. And I'm going to do something about this. I'm going, there's no legal process, but I'm going to find a legal way to do something about it. And I really came out with a fury. So I really decided to pursue justice for myself with the fury. Um, and it was difficult because my parents were very strongly against me on this. It had been mentioned a few times growing up that it's not a good idea, not a good idea. But once I actually took action, um, and when I say take action, that means I called schools in the area. I called um, a division of the NYPD that specialized in um, child sexual abuse. And I, I spoke to local rabbis and the congregation they were in. I actually um, I created a Google Ads campaign and I really went after the guy. My thought process was um, I dare him to try and, and sue me for defamation. I dare him to try to come and say this didn't happen, which I didn't think he would, and he didn't. Um, in the end, he w and in the end, a quick Google search showed me that he was working in a shul with kids. Um, so this whole foundation that I had of my parents were protecting other people by making sure he doesn't work with kids or within the community um, this wasn't true. And it, it, it really, um, it, it ignited my passion for going after the guy. But at the same time, um, I feared that he would continue, I would fear that he would continue molesting children. Um, and I happened to have a friend at the time who was asking me questions saying, Hey, Rafi, I know this happened with your uncle. I have a friend who's a little bit concerned about his son hanging out with this guy. And I was like, Oh my God, this is actually still happening. Um, and so I really pulled almost, you know, a decade or more of confusion and questions passionately into, um, ousting him in any way that I could. And it turned out that his, his wife worked in a uh, prominent Brooklyn yeshiva. And so I contacted them. I said, hey, you need to know that they're still married and that her husband is, a, is, a, is dangerous and he shouldn't be around children. And I really went after every avenue I could. Uh, when it came to pursuing legal action, though, I was stopped. Everything that had happened to me occurred within New York State, barring me from any federal um, filing anything federally. And because of that, I found myself a bit stuck and depressed and saddened that I know my cause is just, but I have my family against me. I have the legal system against me. And... There's just not much I can do about this here. And I hit a bit of a, I, I don't want to say hit a stop, I hit a pause in my pursuit of claiming justice for myself. Um, comments that I heard were 
Rafi, you're in a dark place, or Rafi, you're being selfish. Think of his kids, think of the other people that this happened to and don't want the story to come out. And it was all of these very weak uh, requests that I really um, felt defeated having to give into due to the fact that New York State had such a terribly weak uh, protection for children who had gone through this. I found out that I had missed the statute of limitations by a few months. Um, the actual statute of limitations wasn't completely clear, but at most I had until the age of 23 of 18 plus five years, uh, while federally there was none. So I had to stop at the time. And this put me down to my modern day difficulty with the entire issue because I, I was living in a, I, I purchased a home. I was able to visualize that I'm going to have kids and the entire time I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to have children here. Um, I'm a, I can see that there's no real protections going on for if this was to happen again and that he is still out there doing exactly what he's doing and no one, no one really cares. Um, I guess that was the biggest issue is that no one really cares and they, they might say they care, but they don't care enough to actually take action about it, um, which, is, which is what matters. So throughout the time that I'm trying to pursue him, uh, trying to find some kind of legal way or some kind of, whether legal or not traditional, I want to say illegal because I, I had no intention of doing anything illegal, but some kind of way of exposing him. And I, I was attempting to really get the message out. And I happened to purchase a home around the same time. And I was, you know, and I was living with, um, you know, we, we didn't have any kids yet, my wife and I. And I had this realization that I'm going to be a dad one day at some point. And it really made things very difficult for me to accept that the community in which I grew up with, um, that I grew up in, really didn't care much about uh, child sex abuse. It, it, sure, if you speak to anyone individually, they would say it's a terrible thing and, and everyone's there to say sorry and how terrible it is and, and so on and so on. When it comes to actually taking any action, um, they're all a bit, well, you know, Hashem has his ways of dealing with things or, oh, it wouldn't look good for the community. And there's a lack of, they, they care. They don't care enough to actually take action. And this left me feeling quite defeated since, um, you know, as I know many other people have in that you try to do everything right. This isn't something that you chose. This is something that happened to you. And you try to take the legal roads that you need in order to get justice and to protect other people as well. And it's just not available to you. Legally, you're, you're shut out. He, he would have, he does have more legal protection than I do if I were to say something. And since then I've had three amazing boys. Um, and I, and I've had to deal with a lot of, uh, PTSD as I've grown up. And I, I don't throw the word PTSD, sorry, as they've grown up and I don't throw around the term PTSD lightly. Um, it's something that I've actually come to realize fairly recently that as my son is, in, as my oldest is in grade school, and he is behaving similarly and, and playing with the same toys and doing things that I used to do, I'm seeing more and more of myself in him. I don't necessarily have a fear of, it, of 
any abuse happening to him. I'm not foolish enough to think that it couldn't happen. I just don't have a direct worry. But at the same time, there's a lot of memories that rush back of my youth, of feeling alone, of feeling scared, and the the isolation that comes with being abused. And it's something, and an additional layer of difficulty is that not many people speak up. As many people speak up, there are countless others who don't. And the stories I always hear are of, I told my parents and they were so supportive. Uh, while with me, I told my parents and it was, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we, we, we believe you, we think, but not enough to do anything. And it worries me that about the kind of parent I am, about the kind of parent I want to be. And although I know I'm doing, you know, although I, it's a common parent worry, although I know I'm doing a good job, um, there is always this voice in the back of my head. There's always this baggage that I will have to carry around with me that is something that I didn't choose. It's something that he does not have to live with. He is close to the age of retirement. Even if he was convicted today, he would, he still has had a, a fine life. He's never been ousted. And people might know, but he could just deny it. And they're like, yeah, it probably isn't true anyway. There's no concrete way. There's no legal process to show that he is dangerous, that he is still doing this. Um, and that to me is the, is the hardest pill to swallow. And it's something that I will have to carry around with me the rest of my life. And I just feel that's not fair. I know saying it's not fair is a little, uh, it might be a little juvenile at times, but that's really what it comes down to, um, is that it's something that I'm, I will always have to just carry around. Now, at the same time, there's, there, it, there are amazing resources out there and there are incredible communities for people who want to pursue help. And, um, there are some out there that I reached out to years ago, which let me know that I'm not alone have allowed me to continue my life and let this be something that happened to me, not something that's defined me. But at the same time, I feel that I'm, I'm realizing more recently that it, it's something I will always hold on to. And it's something that I will have to learn to live with as my kids get older. And as I am, um, I have more triggers towards my own childhood and I have more flashbacks. It's something that I'm going to have to learn to cope with continuously at the abuse didn't start and stop with my abuser. The abuse um, began with the abuser, but it's con continued and been perpetuated by the lack of speaking up at having to see him at family events and life cycle events when I really didn't want to. Um, and it's, it's continued by people knowing and people caring, but not caring enough to do anything. This is loaded because it seems like you're trying to do everything you can to let this go and not define you. And exactly. at the same time, there's a wrong that's in your face, in your family, in your community. And all the people you've trusted and depended on are continuing their lives as if this is non-issue. Yes, exactly. And then... An extra layer of, and I've been saying a lot how people, they know when they care, but not enough. And I've 
seen similar stories. Many people have, people who have been abused, whether sexually or other, have different ways when they want to get their story out. There's different avenues nowadays of powerfully getting your, your voice out there through social media and through other media avenues. And when I see a story of, you know, there are, there are times that I've seen stories of abuse similar to my story, a young, a young boy that it happened to by a family member. I've seen people in my family and people I know say, wow, that's terrible. You know, that's, I, you know, thoughts and prayers and all those great things. Um, but when it came to me, it was like, well, whatever, he's fine. And that's something that it's, uh, it, it sits with me and it stings because on the face, they, in, uh, at face value, they want to show people how much it matters to them but when it comes to their own family. Um, there's never been any words, there's never been any conversation that says, Rafi, I know this happened to you. It's terrible. Let's see what we can do about it. Or how are you coping? I know you have three boys. How are you doing with all of this? So that just doesn't really cross anyone's mind. Um, except for my brother, I guess I've negated how he has been supportive and he has allowed me to, to think about what has happened to me. And uh, he's been the only person who believes that it happened, believes to what level it has happened. And for that, I, I think it really helped me through a difficult time. So even having one person who believes you um, helps me through all of my difficulties. He's always there that I can message and reach out to and text even and just say, today's a hard day. Um, so I have to mention that as well, that even having one person there for you does go a long way. You've mentioned the belief and support of your wife as well. Who's the first person to give you that validation. Yes. So I have a few questions here. There, there are a few unknowns here or question marks that come up with your story. One is the therapist relationship here. So it seems like the first relationship you had with a the therapist was not successful because the whole point of a relationship with a the therapist and, and why it costs so much money is because... There is this artificial safe place that's created, especially for children who are so much more vulnerable. And that was completely taken away when the therapist said that what you're saying is not confidential. I think that when children see therapists, there's some understanding that there's follow-up with the parents. And I'm sure other therapists navigate that maybe a little more smoothly to create an environment of a safe space. But how long did that therapy last? And did you ever transition to a more healthy therapy relationship? Yeah, very, very valid question. <laughs> um, so I studied social work when I, for, for my undergrad. So I, I did learn at some point that the, the relationship that I had with that therapist was very odd, that it, it pretty much went against the basic principles of what a, what a therapist should be doing. And so when, when I saw that therapist, it was approximately a year to 18 months after I had told my, my family and I saw her for probably about a year and a half. I don't think I opened up at all. Um, we spoke about how I didn't do very well in school and how I was a poor student and the entire experience just made things much, much worse beyond just not open. It, it wasn't, I didn't open up as in, 
I sat there quietly, which I know many people do. Um, it was something that I would try to speak with her and then I would change my story, realizing that whatever I say will be used against me. I did have an incredible um, relationship with another therapist during college who I spoke to and helped me to really understand and think through um, what it was that I went through. What am I upset about? Uh, because that's something that it's when when you're in your early 20s and, and life in general is just very confusing, um, or at least it was for me, it really helped to have a therapist to be able to help me sort out my thoughts and focus my energy properly. Right. I know it's a terrible thought to put out there, but can you go back to that therapist and say, what the heck? <laughs> I'd like a refund on behalf of my parents for a year and a half of... <laughs> You know, besides for wasting money and time, you could have been with a therapist who could have paid a completely different life for you. She was in an extremely powerful position to direct your life. She she was in the place of, of help. Like if your parents didn't want to pursue legal action and you did, and clearly this was more touchy because it was within the family, your therapist was in a position to protect you and she completely failed. And I'm not saying go see your therapist. I think that's a terrible thought to have, but has that ever crossed your mind? Um, I, I did try to Google her a few times. I couldn't find her, and I wonder if she's still practicing. Um, yeah, there, it, it was a pivotal point, and I, we, I, I think that, or I know that, I, I always wonder what would have been if I had more support. What would have been if I was able to do well in school? during that time, what kind of trajectory would that have set me on? But I can only think of it so far because I, there are many things that um, I've accomplished with my life that I, I've been successful at. And I, I, I don't think that it would be worth my energy to go back. And there, there are times you wonder like, what, what would you say if you ever saw your abuser? What would you say if you ever saw this therapist or someone else who, who really just messed up along the way? And there's just not much to say. Where do you even begin to, to explain to them the, the pain that was caused? It comes to a point you just would rather not say anything at all because whatever you say, you, you don't know how it will be perceived. You know, if I, if I were to hypothetically contact this therapist and say, Hey, you know, you really messed up and you were terrible and this and that, they would say, well, you're not the first patient who's told me that, or you can't please all the people all the time, or there's always a way to write things off. Um, I think what's most important is to, is to recognize that this therapist wasn't what I needed at the time. And it, it pains me to, to speak negatively about therapists because the, the, as much as this therapist did wrong and had a, a and really missed an opportunity. Um, a therapist that I had during college completely made up for it and beyond. So um, there's not much to say to, to these people that have failed me along the way. It just is, it's life and you just right. keep going. And it's beautiful how you're expressing that with, it's, it's the right thing to do because there's nothing, you can't just be bitter about this for the rest of your life and try to find a scapegoat for your story which clearly you've tried in finding one or because you, you missed the statute of limitations, you missed one of the most important boats out there. 
But it's beautiful what you said, and you being a social worker, I understand how we can't start. Yeah. It pains, yeah, it's, it's a painful subject. My other huge question mark is, and, and that's a very common one that comes up. You said your abuser is still married and has a family, and it seems like everything stayed the same after everything came out. So it, it's yes and no. Um, so I mentioned that I, I called his wife's school where she was working, which was a, you know, it's, which is a, a well-known, a well-respected um, you know, Jewish institution. And I let them know that, you know, not to say, hey, what's wrong with you for hiring her? Uh, but just to say, just so you know, this person shouldn't be allowed on school grounds. And after that, they did get divorced. So this was about 10 years after the story came out. So in my mind, it was a bit too little too late. Um, it was clear that the divorce, it, it, if he had gone to some kind of therapy, and whether therapy works for this, I'm, I'm not going to go into that now. But um, if hypothetically there was reason for her to believe that this was something that was in the past, um, then then that's one thing. But I was able to find out with very little effort that he was still working um, amongst other children. Now, when I say little effort, I mean just some Google searches. I didn't hire any, you know, investigator or anything. It was really just basic. Um, you know, modern um, sleuthing. So it, the family did continue. I think the biggest concern was more keeping the family structure and the family prestige than it was actually addressing what had happened um, or, or, or really taking care of me the way I needed to be taken care of as a child who was going through a very difficult and a, a difficult time to navigate. Right. It was just difficult. It's a lot of sense. Do you know if you were the only victim slash survivor of this abuser, or were there others? I personally know of three others from, from this person, um, all within New York. And it is something that I tried to pursue legal action with the new, um, with the new law that was passed back in February, given a one-year window to bringing up um, the Child Victims Act, sorry, which would allow me to, um, to bring a case to, to pursue legal action. Um, I have not yet spoken to a lawyer who would be interested in hearing the case because he doesn't have any money that is worth suing him for, which is difficult on its own. He did happen to work at an institute, at, a, at another um prestigious Jewish um, institution. And the people I know, the other three people I know, it actually occurred at that institution. So they would have the ability to take legal action. Understanding the, um, sorry, understanding the, the mental toll it takes in order to dig this back up and go through a legal process, it's not the kind of thing that I would ever want to push on anyone else. Um, I've been in touch with two of them. I, I've asked if they would be interested and they said, yeah, we'd be interested, but it's, it's not the kind of, you know, but to, to bring it up, to even send a text message and say, Hey, have you thought of this could be enough to send someone into a month long depression. And that's not something I have any intention of doing or anything I, mm -hmm. I want to have on my shoulders. You did mention something about considering yourself being a success story 
Can we talk more about that and how, Mm -hmm. first of all, it's an amazing thing. And also something about how your interview a few in a few weeks or a few weeks ago would have been completely different from today. I'd like to know more of day-to-day changes today that are being impacted. Sure. So there were many goals that I had set out to achieve in my life. Um, one of them was having a family. Right? So, so success on its own, as corny as it sounds for me, is having um, a stable, happy, um, truly enjoyable marriage and family. And I have three kids that are fun, dang it, three boys who are fun, energetic. And I always, my wife and I had a dream of moving to Israel since we met. And we met when we were 18 on a gap year here in Israel. And we, a few years ago, we achieved that goal. We made Aliyah very successfully. And I say that um, because we have, we found a community we like, we found employment that we like. And my weekends are spent hiking with my kids, and there's really quality family time there, which is something that I, I think is hard, harder to come by than it should be. And I've really put a lot of work into making sure that's there. Um, another success is that I've been able to start my own business, and that's taken off quite well. And I think a lot of people who go through abuse, there are there are many extra hurdles in the way. And that voice of you can't do this, you can't do this is extra strong because as much as the average person has that voice in their head, um, they haven't had it confirmed as frequently and continuously by society as, as I have and as many other people who have gone through abuse have. And so I feel that my success is even extra because I've had that strong voice in my head and the social confirmation that you're going to fail, you're not going to do this, your thoughts are stupid. Um, And I've been able to really um, push those all aside and make the life for myself that that I feel I deserve and that I've always wanted. That's really amazing to hear that you you were and you are able to make the most out of your life and really decide what's the most important thing for you and take that. So can you talk a little bit about the PTSD moments you have that come up while raising a family, especially with children the same gender as you, especially when the ages come closer to the age when your abuse started? Sure. And and this is one of those things that I can answer more in the last few weeks. It's something I've, I've come to acknowledge and accept that the abuse that occurred, it wasn't only... The abuse itself it wasn't only the moments of being sexually abused. It was the it was the social withdrawal that I that I did. Um, it was the lack of acceptance. It was the lack of understanding by any adult around me. And as my son is in grade school and he gets older, it's natural for kids to have difficult days. It's natural for kids to have difficulty socially. They have a hard day. Their friend didn't pick them for a game or they want to sit next to a friend on the bus and the other friend didn't want to that day. And as difficult as that is for any parent, it triggers for me that deep feeling of one, he must be as sad as I was back at that age. In addition to 
am I being a good enough parent for him? Does he recognize that I'm actually here for him, that I'm supporting him? And it's very hard to separate what is normal because I don't know what is normal. And so it's hard to separate what is normal from um, what is excessive. And I think that's the biggest thing is if he has a hard day, you know, he, he comes home and he's had a hard day at school that day, which is few and far between, but it still happens. I embody that. And I feel that I, I, I remember the feeling of no one around you really cares that much. And it triggers those memories and it brings me back in a way that um, I have to find a way to, uh, it, it, it brings me back in a way that I feel I need to go through the motions of how I soothe myself in a way that um, is reflective of PTSD. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because the idea of pain or sadness or loneliness, they're hard to measure. I feel like it's easier to measure on one person when they've experienced one certain type of pain and then later in life they experience something else. They can measure one to the other but measuring from one person to the other i think people experience pain on the same level even if what they're experiencing is completely different for example a child who's crying because a toy was taken away from him or her versus someone suffering from abuse on the outside or inside it could technically look like the same pain to that child in that moment when obviously it's not the same pain. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, it, it, you, it's hard. you can't compare pain. You can't compare pain. <laughs> I mean, it's all, exactly. Yeah, but yeah. I understand how you could compare pain of the same person, but comparing pain from different parts of your life because there is there's some sort of baseline sure. there that you could measure off of. So that being said, it makes a lot of sense that you say you don't know what's normal and you feel for your child and at the same time you don't know what's normal and what's not. But definitely being a social worker, you probably have a little more insight and it makes sense that you went into this field because... Well, I, I studied social work. I actually, I don't work in it anymore. Um, Got it. But I did study and I, I, I was never licensed, <laughs> but um, I did work in a social worker and a social working role for a while. I guess I have one closing question for you. A lot of survivors I speak to say that even though their life wasn't something necessarily they would have picked for themselves, they wouldn't necessarily want to change anything. Does that apply to you as well? Is there anything you would have wanted to change? Or based on where you are today, it makes sense that you went through what you went through because it made you who you are today. Yeah, it's the paradox. Yeah, I definitely wish I could have changed my full childhood. Um I completely wish I could have somehow swapped it out and yet still met my wife and still had the life I have now. Um, I don't think that the life I have now is a result of the the abuse I had. I don't I don't honestly feel I turned it into a positive. Um, I think it was just terrible, and um, I I believe that my that I would have been capable of achieving what I've achieved without it. Um, that's not to discredit anyone else who feels differently by any means, because I certainly understand where they're coming from. It, it leads you down paths that you never expected. Um, but it was a, it's just been an ongoing process that I wish I didn't have with me.
Right. Thank you so much, Rafi, for opening up, sharing your story, and hopefully being a part of this supportive community and network for people to learn more about what to do, what not to do, and how <laughs> and how our actions affect other people. And I will say, if, if anyone is at home and listening or in their car, and you're thinking, I have kids, what can I do? And, you know, and excited, I have people that, and I, I do tell friends and people I know about what happened. Um, I, I by no means hold it as a secret. I, I think it's important to share that this does really happen. And I think the most important thing is to actually speak to your kids. Um, you don't have to, and of course, make it age appropriate. You don't have to scare them. Um, I think it's very unlikely that someone's going to drive up and jump out of a car and grab them and do something. It's usually um, something that it's from people they know. And it, it, I don't necessarily even blame my parents for it happening to me. It's something that is crucial that you speak to your kids and you say, even if it's someone that we trust as a family, even if it's someone that you are supposed to trust fully and something is not right, never be ashamed to say no, to scream, to run away, um, and to, to defend yourself. If you know it's wrong, listen to your gut and you come and you tell your parents or someone else you can trust right away. I think that's something that I am working on with my kids and something that uh, is the only thing that really can truly prevent it from, um, continuing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rafi. Sure. Thank you. Thanks so much for sticking around until the end. Also, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe to the show and make sure to follow me on Instagram at Francisca Music for updates and announcements. Next week, we have a special interview with Shane Delantelis. And thank you for listening to The Francisca Show, a jewishcoffeehouse.com podcast. If you would like to write in or request to be on the show, please do so by emailing me at franciscak at gmail.com. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-K-A-K-A-Y at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and go to iTunes and leave us a good review. With your review, the show will rank higher and help others discover the show. This Francisca Show podcast will be hosting a No More Silence special on abuse once a month. However, do check in on other weeks for the interviews with female Jewish creatives. See you next time.